0: Hey, everybody, welcome to our week in review. I am Stephen Cox along with chair of the King County Democrat, Shasti Conrad, and Will Casey, managing partner of Left Wing Digital. We are talking this week about that most basic but elusive of concepts in government, especially among Republicans accountability. Specifically, talking here about the GOP moving to block a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th attack on our Capitol. So, after Democrats introduced a bill for the commission, House Republican leadership countered with a list of demands that basically just watered down the commission. And Democrats called their bluff and said, fine. And then 176 out of the 211 House Republicans, that is 83%, still voted against the bill. And then today, just hours before we started to record, as they threatened they would, Senate Republicans have blocked the bill and they did it. And I wish I were making this up as a personal favor to Mitch McConnell. Um, Just let's just start here, you guys. First and foremost, just your thoughts on what just happened, Chastity.
1: I mean, it's just—it's disgusting. It's it's, just—it's. I mean, in some ways, I shouldn't be surprised or shocked by any of anything that the Republicans do these days, because I think that they've shown us, you know, certainly on January sixth, but even beforehand, that they are uh, anti-democratic and really should not be taken seriously as a political party anymore. They are literally just the cult of saving our. Like, that's really all it is. It's just about protecting their own interests, protecting themselves from accountability, as you just said. And it's just I mean, it's just gross. And, uh, you know, again and again, I'm like, this is why you have to abolish the filibuster. Like, what are we doing here? Um, We cannot reason. You can't reason with terrorists. And that's what the Republican Party has become.
0: Or as, as I, uh, I I can't claim this, but uh, as I read somebody uh, saying on Twitter, you can't negotiate with tourists. So there you go. Yeah. That's the title of our There's show. an episode title for you. Exactly. <laughs> Will, what, what, what are your thoughts here, man?
2: Well, I just have to echo what Shasti said. The time is over for us to be negotiating about the filibuster. We just have to move on with this nonsense. I mean, if you're not for figuring out exactly who's responsible for, you know, the first attack, armed attack on our capital since I think the War of 1812, um, I think it's time for you to go. In addition to these Republicans who filibustered this vote, I think we also have to turn our attention to, you know, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, right? Like, This is we're done with this. I need to appear reasonable and, you know, try to win over my Republican colleagues who I've served with for blah, 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 blah. No, like it time is over. Right. Like if you're not willing to investigate a terrorist attack on your own workplace, you know, we've got bigger fish to fry and we just need to move on because people are expecting us to deliver on bigger issues. And that's not to say that this isn't important, but like this should just be the straw that breaks the camel's back on the filibuster. 100%
0: agreed. Hold that thought, because I I want to dig deeper on that in just a second. But I just want to point out the obvious right here. It feels like we have learned nothing, right, over the last 13 years of dealing with Republicans. We have full control of Congress. Why does Democratic leadership still feel the need to accommodate Republicans? Shasti, any any thoughts here?
1: Well, I know we've talked about it on the show before about... um, Democrats who lived through the 90s in, you know, sort of how Congress was laid out and that, you know, I think that they sort of feel like, you know, their allegiance is to process and that, you know, you lose, you lose, you lose, you maybe get one win. And like, that's enough. And I think that's coming up head to head against um, a new generation that is like, no, we are sick of your incre- incre- incrementalism. We are sick of waiting. Um, we are going to push and push and push. And that is creating a lot of tension. And it's and you know, we the numbers aren't quite there for the side that's going to like make it happen um, when you have like you know Chuck Schumer still still leading the way and Nancy Pelosi, um, but I I think you know in the next hopefully maybe even the next month we will see some changes that allow for um, a new strategy to sort of take place and for them to be more fearless and in, in going after and you know I, I I also think that Will's exactly right about we can't let Mansion and Cinema. Um, off the hook here. Like, it's, e- it's so easy to blame us on the Republicans, because that's who where it should be. But at this point, mansion and cinema, if we if the Democrats were stronger, they would know that that's that's who they needed to be playing to and not to, you know, conservatives.
0: Yeah, again. And like I said, I want to absolutely dig on that in just a second. But Will I want to get your thoughts here. I mean, the the, the classic analogy is is Lucy and Charlie Brown and the football, right? And it just keeps happening over and over again. Why are we locked in this pattern?
2: Well, I mean, I think that I agree. First of all, I agree with everything that Chassis said, right? This is a generational issue. This is a, a fundamental misunderstanding of the moment th- that we're in historically. But I think we also have to realize that, you know, there's another bill that has to pass. And, you know, we need to kill the filibuster to do it in order to remove these terrible incentives, because, you know, the reason why uh, Democrats who have been in power for, you know, since I was in elementary school um, are that they realize that our system of government is fundamentally stacked against, our coalition, right? Like we, the the House of representatives is gerrymandered to hell. Um, are the Senate ridiculously over favors rural areas um, that uh, are represented by Republicans? I think it's like forty some million more people are represented by the Democratic senators compared to the Republican colleagues, and it's just fundamentally undem- uh, undemocratic. And I think what we need here is a clarity to understand you know, passing H.R. 1 and taking partisan redistricting out of the equation is an essential, you know, first step to making sure that we don't have to cater to this, you know, outdated uh, concept of bipartisanship when one of the parties fundamentally just doesn't believe in governing anymore. So, you know, I mean, there's, they would argue they have good reasons, but we also can't let them off the hook just to say that, you know, those are fixable, right? We can solve those problems uh, if we just, you know, choose to act with the courage we need.
0: Well, so let's talk about acting with the courage uh, that we uh, that we need to act with. Um, you know, let's 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 dig in on the filibuster here. So now that we know that the GOP is going to play this card, I think some are hoping that this will be leverage for Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema. You know, Manchin said he was sure that 10 Republicans would would step up and do the right thing. Um, where, do, where does the fight go from here, Shasti? What do you think?
1: I mean, I do I, I uh, it looks like um, they're gonna try to bring the um, sr one to the floor, I think Schumer said at the end of June. And so I think I think maybe, I mean, maybe that is part of the strategy is to just show that like even when like you just said, you know, you've got a, a terror attack at your workplace, and even then you, you know the Republicans aren't willing to move. I mean, maybe it's just like a further case study for them to be able to help push. Um, and get sr one passed. I think you know I, I wish I had better I wish I had better uh, ideas for how to fix this one. I mean, I think manchin has gotta see that this is that this is not that his current strategy is not working. Um, this whole idea that like maybe you know maybe at ten of my friends will you know do the right thing it's just, that's not, it's not the world we're living in. Um, And I don't know what to do about cinema. I mean, uh, I am excited to see that the Arizona state Democrats passed a resolution, I think last week. um, So, you know, calling on ending the filibuster and um, are doing everything they can to try to hold cinema accountable. And so I think that type of activism and organizing, you know, I hope it works. Um, And I I think that it will, but it's, uh, it's going to be a hard fight. But I think we just have to we can't let up any pressure. and We just have to keep pushing to try to get um, the For the People Act passed.
0: That's really great news about uh, the Arizona uh, Democrats. Um, We need more action like that at the state level. Will, anything to add?
2: Uh, Just to, again, second everything that Shasti was saying. But I think also it's important to recognize that this is going to seem like a lost cause until it's not. Right. Like this is this is one of those moments and, and one of those pushes that every you know incremental step isn't going to be something that's publicly visible. But this pressure does have an effect on folks. I mean, having Manchin's uh, statements, you know, being put out over social media and then immediately all of the comments being, you know, flots with people who are just like, well, what are you going to do about it? Right. Shows that, you know, like we are. This message is breaking through. It's getting through to the activist class. And, you know, that's sort of our way to get the message out to everyday voters. So I think, you know, uh, the, the only thing we can do in addition to keeping the pressure up is just making sure that anytime you hear someone in your daily life saying like, oh, well, you know, nothing's happening in D.C., just be like, yeah, exactly. And here's why. And here are the two people who are responsible for that. And here are these all these amazing things we could be doing if only they would, you know, just uh, get their shit together, <laughs> for lack of a
0: better term. What a great message, really. Too, and and also, I love you know. It seems like a lost cause until it's not. I mean, so many uh, pivotal moments in our history have been exactly that. that That's just been you know. There's there's a moment where the dam breaks, and then everything rushes through, and then change happens. And I am hoping that we are looking at a situation similar to that. I want to kind of talk about what happens next because if the Democrats decide to form a, a commission without Republicans, it wouldn't have subpoena power. But maybe the more important question in my mind is why should a commission to investigate January 6th involve any Republicans at all when we know that the insurrection itself was supported by a good number of them? Shasti, any any thoughts on that?
1: I agree. I'm like, you know, anyone who's had to sort of, uh, you know, be the adults in the room, you know, it's like, you can't keep waiting for, you know, the sort of like, kids to take charge it's like you've got to lead the way and keep it moving and fortunately for democrats like we have to be the adults always like it's it's never there is no back and forth in the in this work anymore as democrats we have to continue to do what's best for uh for people we have to do what's best for this country do what's best for democracy and i i'm totally down for it i think we just keep being like okay, well, you all are just screwing around over here and you don't care about what happened, we are moving forward. So we, and we will happily investigate all of you because you clearly don't want to be put on the witness stand. Like you clearly don't want you, there's something that you know, or there's something that you are connected to over and over and over again. And so I think we absolutely have to keep it moving forward. I mean, you know, it's like when the house is on fire and the arsonist is sitting there smoking cigarettes. You don't see the firefighters be like, "Hey, come on in, buddy." You know, it's like, "No, <laughs> you, we got to like, we grab our hoses, we get it done, we fix what we've got to fix." Um, and I just think that this is. I mean, we we have to stop waiting around. I mean, you all know I've gone off on the bipartisanship stuff a million times, and I. I'm just sick of listening to sort of the weak-willed Democrats be like, "Well, but I need to get one Republican's support to for it to mean anything." No, people don't care. They want you to get stuff done. And on this one, we watched as our country was put on the brink of the edge for democracy. And if we don't handle this now, watch what happens in 2024. You know, this was this is the everyone knows that a coup attempt. Rarely is where the story ends. So, get it fixed. Move forward. Investigate it. Let's hold these accountable.
0: Let's not let it be a beer hall putch. And honestly, you know, so many things that you that you just said. You know, the, having to be grown ups always is exhausting and also especially you know when bipartisanship is 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 sort of this uh this high-minded principle that you know we're, we're supposed to have fairness and balance between the two sides <laughs> fair, fair and balanced Where have i heard that before even though as will has pointed out one side of our government is actively trying to destroy our democracy um I, I'm I'm wondering, kind of going further down this path, why why would we even bother to have a commission at all? Why not just have a special prosecutor to indict anybody who, in any way, aided or encouraged the insurrection? Would that be more uh, of an effective route, Chastity? What do you think?
1: I mean, yeah, I think I think that it that it would it would be. I think it has to be. Um, you know, I think you know, we've dealt with some issues within even the Democratic Party around, you know, things that have happened internally. And over and over again, it's like you have to have an independent, at least somebody overseeing it who's not within the system itself because you need a solid check and balance um, to that process. So, I mean, I think if the Democrats are uncomfortable leading it for whatever reason, then we absolutely need an independent commission. Um, You know, I've studied social movements. I've studied, you know, I studied... um, the truth and reconciliation commission out of South Africa when I was in college. And, you know, that I think is still one of the best models for like, we have to get to the truth like you have to get to like what actually happened. And that's the way that you heal in a much deeper way, not just in, in, you know, for Congress, but for this country to move forward is you have to be able to grapple with facts. Um, And right now we're stuck in rhetoric.
0: You know, Will, I know we've faced a similar situation here at home that you are very familiar with, and that is the situation with uh, former state representative Matt Shea. So ultimately, it was a nonpartisan investigation that took him down. But I wonder if you could maybe talk about that and then also explain why Shea's wrongdoing was never publicly investigated.
2: Well, so I think there's a couple of factors, right? So the one thing that we have to start off from is that this was a a pre-2020 moment Mm -hmm where the Republicans at the state legislature here actually agreed after a lot of public pressure to fund a nonpartisan investigation. Right. Like we in the in the Washington state legislature, they went the route of having an outside investigator who was not it was not a commission of members of the body. Right. This was someone they hired externally. Um, And I think who they hired also mattered a lot because it was nonpartisan, former law enforcement officers, the person who led the investigation had experience in the FBI. And so that person was at least to the more mainstream, you know, Republican voters who, you know, prioritize law and order. And they think, you know, folks with law enforcement experience are credible messengers on getting to that truth that Shasti's talking about um, those Findings were credible in that way. Right. And we saw pressure for folks to distance themselves. Shea was expelled from the caucus. But even then, like this is how it just goes to show you how deep the rod is in the Republican Party. We couldn't get a single Republican House member to sign on to a letter calling for a vote or at least an investigation within the body to expel uh, Shea based on that uh, investigation, the findings of that, uh, you know, law enforcement officer. So I think what we learned from that example is that we have a real problem here in trying to actually bring on bipartisan, you know, support for accountability. And at the same time, our information ecosystems are so polarized that if we don't have that it's going to be hard to convince you know half the country that this isn't you know as trump would call it a witch hunt right and so you know when we're stuck between a rock and a hard place in that way you know my instincts are exactly like chastis we just have to you know suck it up and uh actually find the truth of the fact or truth of the matter here and just you know let the accountability fall where it may and then if we end up with people refusing to believe the consequences well you know that's what the court of law is supposed to be about so i think that's the ultimate path forward
0: I would have loved to have, have thought really that our state in, could have been a model uh, and a, a sort of, sh- a, a, you know, a way forward here. But, um, yeah, as you say, it's, it's the GOP. So we always go back and default to that. You know, and speaking of the things that have sort of emanated here from Washington, what do we know at this point about high level individuals from our state who took part in the January 6th insurrection? Sh- Shasti, can you sh- shine any light on that?
1: Well, I mean, we definitely know that there were a number of people um, who traveled from our state all the way to the other Washington just for that event. Um, and, you know, that includes uh, several members of Seattle Police Department. Um, and, uh, you know, the police chief and, and even the mayor have been sort of covering that up or at least not holding them accountable. Um, in, so, you know, last week was filing week um, in the city of SeaTac. We have a a woman who uh, participated in the attacks, um, who is running uh, for one of the seats. Her name is Alona um, Kearney, I believe. And so, yeah, I mean, there's multiple people. Um, We, I mean, we know that we are a hotbed for white nationalist um, organizing, and so. It's, you know, it's definitely very much a part of what we are grappling here within the within this state. Um, And there has not been, I haven't seen really any accountability for folks who have participated um, being held accountable out here in, in our own state.
0: You know, I also want to talk about two members of the Washington GOP congressional delegation who are outliers in all of this and what the ramifications of that might be. Uh, We'll take a quick short break and then we'll be right back. Uh, So two members of our Washington GOP congressional delegation have broken from the ranks recently. And I want to talk about the ramifications. Uh, Jamie Herrera Butler of the 3rd CD and Dan Newhouse of the 4th both voted to impeach and both were one of 35 Republicans to vote for the bipartisan commission. And I want to talk about how this is playing on the ground in eastern Washington. So we are joined by our friend, the incomparable Danielle garby Reeser. She is co-chair of the Washington State Democrats Rural Committee and the fifth congressional representative to the Washington Democrats Executive Board. She also ran for state Senate in 2020. Hello, Danielle. How are you?
3: I'm excellent. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
0: We are always happy to have you. And so I'll just ask you straight up, how do you see the fault lines uh, playing out here in the state between the quote unquote Trump Republicans and what I think we can now call the the JHB Newhouse Republicans? Where is the bulk of the support that you're seeing?
3: Well, I think we're seeing certainly in the fifth congressional district that Kathy McMorris Rogers um, continues to remain popular despite her positions on um, the events of January 6th and on Trump's presidency. And we can see that where Newhouse already has multiple challengers, um, including former um, Washington State gubernatorial candidate Lauren Culp. And so the more traditional moderate Republicans are really under fire in our state. And we see this Crusader Trump wing and Kathy McMorris Rogers still maintaining power and really um consolidating her role in the state party.
0: Do you get a sense that this is creating any sort of schism among the Washington GOP?
3: I think within the party itself, they really seem to be doubling down on this far right wing element. And I know it's probably creating challenges for Newhouse and Jamie Herrera Butler, but in terms of the party itself, my perception so far is that, you know, they had the opportunity to, um, Underscore that their own Republican who oversaw elections in Washington state um, had no fraud that we had a fair election here. They have not done that. They continue to follow the Trump rhetoric. So um, they seem to be making a clear choice on the side of Trump and the false narrative of the big lie that he's maintaining.
1: Now, you know, last year you actually you came out on top in your primary um, and while this dynamic was playing out, can you talk about your race and sort of how you saw this unfold? Thank you. Yes, it was an
3: exciting election year and a challenge, right? we I was running in a district, the 16th Legislative District was the first Democrat to even run for the seat in 16 years. So we've had challenges in eastern Washington, even filling um, names on ballots. And so part of my wanting to step up and run was to show that there's a broad diversity of Democratic ideals and candidates and um, to bring my vision of how Democrats can and should be serving rural communities. And so part of what we definitely saw in my race was just the challenge in Washington state between democratic party that is more centered or perceived as being focused on the west side of the state, focused only on urban issues. And those of us in more rural areas, like myself here out in Walla Walla County, living on a farm and wanting to showcase that government can and should work and show up for us in our smaller towns. And um, was excited to have those conversations in the race and to be continuing that work today.
0: Well, yeah, and and so kind of picking up on that, were people receptive to that messaging where you are? You're talking about you know the the common needs uh, between urban and rural communities. Um, wh- what did you hear from people when when you were would we talk with them about that?
3: I think at the time it was um, there was a strong sense in Eastern Washington that Olympia is. Um, out of touch with what's happening in our communities, but maybe less of an understanding that part of that is structural. When we do not elect any Democrats from rural areas in Eastern Washington, we're not in the room at the table to shape conversation and shape policies in ways that can show up and help our communities. So people were receptive and understanding that without a voice at that table, it is much harder to do the work and make sure that our rural communities are adequately represented. At the end of the day, of course, um, a Republican was still elected and, you know, that we have a, a hill to climb there to make sure we keep building the electorate and our message and that we as Democrats in Washington state show up for every corner of the state and keep delivering for our rural communities.
1: You know, we know a big obstacle to Democrats is winning in rural areas like in eastern Washington. And, the, you know, it's the cultural perception that our party just doesn't understand what life is like in those communities. How did you work to correct that false assumption in your campaign? Yeah. Thank you for the question. And it
3: is frustrating living in Eastern Washington and and feeling like we aren't understood or that we are often underestimated or all grouped in as one um, red bucket. And the reality is that there's great diversity in Eastern Washington, not only of political views, but also in our communities. And part of what I really tried to do with my campaign was put Eastern Washington on the map in a different way, show that we have strength of um, our democratic ideas that we were able to raise um, significant funds from here, um, showcase the diversity in our community with a growing Latino population, that there were issues and concerns that matter to our whole state, like climate change, like healthcare, and that we can't solve those problems unless we're including and engaging our rural communities. We have solutions and great um, initiatives happening here, and we are learning things that could even help our cities. So I was really proud that we were able to start moving the needle on those Conversations and building a greater understanding um, that as Democrats, we can not only better understand what's happening in Eastern Washington, but we also need to deliver. We need to deliver on jobs. We need to finally bring rural broadband out to this. Region And we need to make sure that people in my community don't live five years less because of an outdated health care system. There are real realities on the ground that are challenges that um, we as Democrats need to keep working to fix.
0: And I think that's really the coin of the realm. And we're so grateful to you for doing this work because it's essential. I mean, we know that uh, the key to Uh, say, you know, taking over the the fifth congressional district is going to run directly through the path that you're talking about. And I want to ask you, it's a bit of a curveball, but, you know, you talked about uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers and, you know, the fact that people sort of coalesced around her and she was uh, one of the Republicans who voted against the commission and uh, voted against impeachment. I wonder if you think over the long term or maybe even possibly the short term that that might even prove to be something of a liability for her.
3: I think it definitely has the potential to be a liability. I know her blatant disregard for her oath of office that she would take to uphold the Constitution of the United States is a deeply motivating factor for Democrats who will want to keep mobilizing and organizing against her and to finally retire her out of this seat. Um, One of the interesting factors going into this next electoral cycle is also around redistricting, that we don't know exactly what the fourth and fifth congressional district boundaries will be, but I know we will be very motivated as Democrats to make sure that someone who so blatantly disregards not only the Constitution, but the real needs of our communities and has done so consistently, um, needs uh, to finally retire from Washington, D.C.
1: Yes, definitely. We all can get behind that. Uh, Um, uh, We're just coming up on time here, but I wanted to talk a bit more about the work that you're doing right now. Um, you managed to generate a ton of momentum in a part of Washington that's not always known for being, you know, really friendly towards progressives. And and you've emerged as, um, I'd say, as the local leader in the Democratic Party out there. What um, what have you been up to since the campaign? Thank you so
3: much. We, um, I've been continuing building momentum out here in eastern Washington. There are clearly progressive pockets here, people who want to be engaged and involved in our communities. So I have been excited to join the board of the Washington State Democrats so that we can keep building rural voices within the party. We've been organizing on the ground for local elections, and um, hopefully everyone across the state had a great turnout for local races, but we're um, making sure there's fantastic candidates in Prosser and Pasco and College Place and Walla Walla throughout um, the 16th Legislative district. So I'm excited to see them and really continue this conversation around rural needs and um, the strengths of our rural communities. And we're seeing certainly support from the Biden administration, really having a rural agenda and understanding that our party and our country need to deliver for rural America. So I'm proud to be part of these efforts
0: building back better in Eastern Washington. I I love that. And and we're really, again, just so excited about the work that you're doing. If people want to learn more about it and maybe even get involved, uh, where can they go?
3: Great. Thank you. Well, you can certainly find me anytime on LinkedIn. Again, my name is Danielle Garby Reeser and uh, my new website, garbyreeser.com should be up and running momentarily. So look forward to connecting and hope to see you all out supporting your local Democrats this year.
0: Absolutely. Well, if anybody knows what that's all about at Shasti, <laughs> we're really <laughs> in it to win it this year in 2021. Uh, Danielle Gabri Reeser, such a pleasure as always. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you both. Have a great day.
0: And that'll do it for this week. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. For Will Casey and Shasti Conrad, I am Stephen Cox. We'll see you next time.